0: If your child is facing a life-saving liver transplant, please reach out to the Children's Organ Transplant Association, or CODA. The CODA crew are looking forward to learning more about your family's biliary atresia journey. CODA works with families to lessen the financial burden of a life-saving transplant, and support is provided at absolutely no cost. Please call CODA today at one 800 366 2682 or go to coda.org forward slash get started to learn more about how they can help.
1: Welcome to another episode of Bear It All where we strip away the highlight reel and talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of biliary atresia. So when we first started developing this episode, we were going to try and dig into the published rankings of the centers and like what it meant and how we as families could better understand those things. But then as Jen and I were doing the research for this, we found two things. First, it's complicated. Um, And each publication really has their own methodology for their rankings. And that made it kind of impossible to compare apples to apples and for us to have a productive conversation. Secondly, we found that based on the experience researching this, the rankings didn't really account for some of the imperative things that we felt as a patient experience. So we kind of found ourselves shifting from the topic of this episode of talking about the rankings specifically to where we really wanted to focus on the patient family's perspective of picking a center. On this episode, we're going to focus more on the effective tools, resources that parents and patients can use when making a quote unquote good decision and what a quote unquote good decision looks like. So Jen, will you please introduce our guest that's going to be part of this conversation?
0: Sure. It's an honor to introduce two of our Bayer Medical Advisory members, Saeed Mohammed, who is from Monroe Carroll Junior Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt, where he is the Director of the Pediatric Solid Organ Transplant Center and Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. Ricardo Sabrina, who is from Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, where he is the Division Head of Transplant Surgery co-director of the Saragusa Transplantation Center and surgical director of the kidney and liver transplant programs and professor of surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Thank you both for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I don't know about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I think the the good thing about Billy Atreja is I got to, you know, I got to meet so many great families and especially you, Jen, that we've had a Now, 10 year longer friendship, um, all because of of this disease.
0: So some good comes out of it. (laughs) Yes. So one of the first topics that we wanted to really um, take a look at, dive into is the first thing is we're not going to say that, you know, you're speaking for everybody in the medical community or what, whatnot, but like in your true opinion as a physician, Do you think that published center rankings are a true reflection of the center's ability to provide quality care? And if why or why not? What are your thoughts on this whole process?
2: So, you know, truthfully, I would love to be at the number one center. You know, you always, no matter how good or bad the rankings are, I think everybody wants to be able to say that they're number one. You know, a lot of the rankings, like you said, have different ways of measuring outcomes. And so if you look at, for example, GI, the number one center will be different depending on what you use to to measure these outcomes. So it really depends on what you're trying to, what you're trying to get. I can focus a little bit more about pediatric GI since that is, that's my area and you know, I guess specifically for, for liver transplant, the rankings for pediatric GI have, you know, liver transplants incorporated in there. And so it's going to be, it's a small part uh, of the ranking. I don't know exactly how much weight the liver transplant portion contributes to, to the pediatric GI rankings, but you can go on the website and you can see what, what they're talking about there. I mean, they talk about things like Some things that we would be interested in, like uh, the ability to prevent pressure injuries, prevent infections, you know, experiencing the intensive care unit. But they also talk about how many fellowships are there. Now, as a liver transplant or as a biliary atresia mom or dad, it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters to you whether or not they have, you know, like a nutrition fellowship there, but the center will get dinged on that number and they may come out lower than, than other places. Now, if you look at the top 10 centers, they are all just excellent hospitals that nobody would ever fault you for for going, but they may not be the best place specifically for a liver transplant. And then if you have a very particular kind of condition, for example, uh, liver tumor, maybe you have to look a little bit deeper to find out the best place that you should go.
0: Jordan and I, we had discussed earlier, like as a family to kind of figure out where do you start? Where do you try and go to get the proper and correct care for your sick child? Basically some families, they don't have the opportunity to pick from like three or four different hospitals. Some have the one in their backyard and and that's where they go. And so what kind of advice would you give to a family who? might be in that kind of situation
3: well i think that the rankings are not a good reflection of the care that is able to be delivered at any particular center the rankings are a lot based on reputation and on your connections in duximity, which if you if you have a bunch of people at your center that aren't well connected in duximity, like i just joined duximity a few years ago And I don't think I have a wide network. So we're encouraged to do that because the institution knows that that somehow figures into the rankings, so it's got really nothing to do with, with the care that you're able to deliver. There are a lot of nuances to that, to the rankings so that the overall center score, like they used to score everybody from like one to a hundred, but now it seems as if they stop at 10 for overall. But then for the subspecialties, they get rankings that go deeper. And, um, you know, for example, in my area, GI and GI surgery, we don't honestly know what goes into that score in great detail. And so in our area, which is hepatology, liver surgery, portal hypertension, biliary atresia, we do very well. You know, we have, I mean, if it depended on families and patients voting, I think we would lose score a lot higher. because. Parents' networks are wide-ranging, and we get a lot of referrals based on on just those networks that parents have built up according to certain specific subjects, like, you know, the biliary atresia network. And those networks are the ones that actually work to refer the patients to us. So in that narrow area of biliary atresia and liver transplants, we score very high. So, you know, if you only were able to look at that, you might say that we were in the top 10. But we get diluted out by things that for example central line infections in the ICU or urinary tract infections associated with catheters those tend to drag you down those kinds of areas are the areas that hospitals focus on reducing in order to improve their scores but i you know if you were a patient with biliary atresia or if your child had biliary atresia you might be tied to the local center because you may not be able to travel very far you've got to make a decision quite quickly but if you're looking for a liver transplant center then you have time and those are the kinds of uh research uh that's the kind of research I think that parents would have the time to take and research more deeply
1: so basically like the overall GI score that we're seeing in these different publications aren't a true reflection of that specific subspecialty that a parent could be looking for. So really the first step would be, and if I'm understanding correctly, the first step would really be into diving a little deeper in looking into that subspecialty versus the overall GI score, right?
3: Dr. Mohammed can answer for himself, but I don't really know what goes into that score, honestly, apart from there's four points for liver transplants, you can get from one to four. And for biliary, a specific criteria that they'll score you on, which, you know, as a biliary treaty expert in this world, I don't even agree with how that score was came up with. I mean, I completely disagree with the metric that they're
2: using. I agree. Well, I can't disagree ever with Dr. Superina, who taught me so much anyway, so (laughs) I'll agree there. I think, GI is such a broad category that these, you know, these rankings are looking at, you know, people with IBD, people with abdominal pain, constipation. So it's a very sort of broad scope. And we don't know the people who are sort of involved in taking care of these patients don't know all the steps that are taken to score, to get these scores. I think it shows you sort of how far removed we are from it, and that's why we don't really think it's the best way to measure. I'll say, in particular, a liver transplant center.
0: As parents and seeing the conversations that are out there with within the liver groups and you know biliary atresia, liver transplant, and other liver diseases, it weighs heavily with parents where we have doctors who physicians who are far removed from it and don't really know that it weighs on the parents' decisions in Jordan and I and finding that more parents actually truly do look at this. And so why we were, you know, we wanted to have this discussion today is to help families out there. What would go into making a well, let me give decision? you an
3: example, a very concrete example. I mean, you have a child with atresia, and the metric that the U.S. News and World Report uses is two-year jaundice-free liver transplant free survival which I think is not a very good metric. You can live for two years without a transplant but have a very poor quality of life. And, you know, I, I just came back from a atresia meeting in Belgium where, say, some centers in Japan, some centers in Europe have a 30, 40, two-year transplant-free survival. So as surgeons, the only thing that we can really accomplish doing a Kasai operation is to eliminate the jaundice. But elimination of jaundice doesn't mean that your liver is healthy. And so in the last two or three years, I would say that we have a very high clearance of jaundice. I would say 60, 70%, if not more. But our two-year transplant-free survival rate is only 30 percent. So in that first year, we drop from. But that's because you're using two different metrics. So we have 70 percent jaundice clearance, but only two year transplant free survival of about 30 percent, which means that we are a very aggressive transplant center. So if you look at it in a sort of a normal way, you might say, oh, my God, that center has a very low two year transplant free survival. But the truth of the matter is we look at other things like quality of life, growth, portal hypertension, presence of ascites. You can carry on a child for a year or two being relatively ill, but if you jump in and transplant that patient before the two years is up from the time that you've done the CASAI, you end up having a low transplant-free survival rate. So in a way, it makes it sound as if you're not doing a good job. So, we argued against that last year, uh, with some hospital representatives who you know who took that message to the u s. and News World report people. But I don't think that we got a lot of traction from it. So you know you could you could look at the way that just that sort of dynamic between the Kasai operation and a future transplant is measured by the u s. and News World report, and you could argue that. If you play the game and just don't transplant anybody within the first two years of life, you'll end up looking like you've got a really good two-year transplant-free survival. Rate. But but what if but if you're doing what's good for the child and you'll transplant a lot of those babies who might be jaundice-free, then you end up looking like you've got a poor two-year transplant-free survival. So that's just one example of how misleading some of these statistics can be.
2: I think they do a, I mean, a good job in their sort of in the PR of of this, of these lists. You know, they publish them. They say a lot about them. Hospitals do care about them. But I think for an individual patient, it can be very, it can be very meaningless. So uh, you're asking, what are, what is a parent supposed to do? I think, you know, you could look at this and maybe get a very broad idea, but don't take this as the definitive list of the best places to go to for my child with who has biliary atresia and who may need a liver transplant. I think it depends obviously where you are and who your physician team is. So you have to be connected to a transplant center if you have biliary atresia. I, you know, there are a lot of places that there's a lot of transplant centers out there, which is good, but if you're in the care of somebody who who isn't connected with a transplant center, I think you still need to go visit one even if you're doing well, at least once a year so that they can evaluate you. And like Dr. Suprina said, just because you're, you're not jaundiced doesn't mean that your liver is not sort of sick and that you could benefit from a liver transplant. A lot of people get used to the way they are and just keep going on with life, but they could do so much better if they really did have a liver transplant. So I think your first place of information is going to have to be your physician team. And then I think organizations like yours, where people can reach out, you know, everybody goes and reads reviews of hospitals, doctors, restaurants, everything, you know, you gotta, you gotta go and take a look at, to see what other people say and see, see if something there interests you. And if, you know, you can, I think you can always reach out to different centers and say, you know, my kid has this or that, would you be, you know, would you be willing to see them or would you think? I think if they're, if they're, you know, a good place, you know, they'll respond to you. And if they don't respond to you, then it's probably not a good place for you to go because either, you know, they may not have the answer or they're too, you know, they may be too busy for you.
1: One of the things that I'm taking from this conversation is it's really on the the patient, the family to look and start asking the questions. So what would be your recommendation? So, you know, Dr. Superina, one of the things that you had mentioned was the, you know, comparing the the statistics of survival or what was a transplant-free two years, wow. that example. So who like for you explaining that um, statistic, for example, or that percentage where it looks like it's a really low low percentage, but in fact it's kind of more indicative of kind of being a, a, an aggressive transplant center. If I'm a parent and I see that who am I going to be asking those questions to? Is that something that I can sit down with like the coordinator and kind of get that story? What would, or, I mean, I'm not asking you guys to give me the exact person to talk to but in general, where do you guys think that a story like that could be told to a parent who doesn't necessarily understand those um, statistics? Uh, That's
3: a great question. You know, well, it depends at what stage of the game you're meeting the parent. For example, if I meet a parent before the Kasai operation, I'll just tell them the chances of the Kasai working. And then once I see them after the Kasai, let's say the Kasai is working, then I think it, the message becomes a little more nebulous, right? Because uh, we're not going to go and tell somebody you know who's doing well. Uh, let's say three months after the Kasai operation, the jaundice is cleared the baby's no longer jaundiced, they're having pigmented stools, we may not go up to the parent and say, listen, you know, you're not out of the woods yet because the parent's so happy (laughs) that the jaundice is cleared. But at the first sign of trouble, let's say the baby uh, develops cholangitis and then uh, the liver function starts deteriorating, but the jaundice clears, I think the message at that point would be that we're going to Start you down the transplant evaluation track. Now, it's hard to say to the parent, um, you know, just because we're going to transplant you doesn't mean that the care you received so far isn't good. Another center might be more inclined to treat that patient conservatively and not transplant them. It all depends on how, you know, what your transplant numbers are like. And it becomes very complicated, honestly, to try to project a message that you're really trying to do what's best for the child, even if it means that you're going to transplant them earlier than they would be transplanted at another center. These statistics, unfortunately, nowadays, you know, the statistics can be bewildering. I mean, they're bewildering to us. I can't imagine what it's like to be a parent and try to make some sense of the statistics. I mean, I will sit down and try to explain it to, to anybody who wants to listen to me for, you know, like, like I am doing right now, but Even when you're trying to pick a transplant center, you're looking at all of these statistics, which are, again, out there on the internet. Uh, The SRTR does everything from three-year survival after transplants, one-year transplant survival, how many livers you turn down, how many livers you accept, what's your average wait list time. There's so many factors that go into that decision that you'd have to sit down with somebody for like two hours to even try to scratch the surface of it.
2: Some of these numbers just make you, they do make you look bad. And there are ways, like with any sort of set of statistics, there are ways to play around with it and and make yourself look good by not doing the best for patient care or not taking risks. I think sometimes you have to, you do have to take risks. And the risk is that your center is going to look, in comparison to other places, it's going to look worse off. And I don't think there's an easy way to figure out if that's the case or not, but some of the data is buried in these SRTR reports where you can see, you know, if there's a center that only transplants 12-year-olds, that's not a place you want to go if you have a baby with biliary atresia, because most of those kids need a transplant before their age, if they're going to get transplanted before the age of two. So that's probably not the best place to go. You wanna look for places that, you know, have experience doing split transplants. So that's also in the SRTR data, but there's no way for anyone to, you wanna know what how to make a good decision. It's, I mean, it's impossible, like, like all of parenting. It's just, it's impossible to do the best all the time. And I think if you ask either myself or Dr. Sabrina, where could you go for a transplant? There's there's There are a lot of centers that will do a really good job Some of it will depend on people's, the accessibility, the resources that they have. If you say in particular, well, this patient has a hepatoblastoma or liver cancer, maybe I would narrow that down to fewer centers, you know, but that's, some of it is based on knowledge and some of it is my own bias too, as to, you know, who I've worked with and who I know will do a good job with it. I think the rankings are very hard and can be easily twisted to suit whoever's publishing it. Or whoever benefits from these rankings.
1: There's two parts too. You know, on the flip side, it's <clears throat> excuse me, understanding um, what you guys are talking about right now. On the other side, is it takes a parent to be in the right frame of mind and being being in the right mental state to absorb that information, right, and to take that information in rationally. And I think a lot of times parents are in that position, whether it be when they're first diagnosed with biliary atresia or when they first find out that the Kasai is quote unquote failed and they have to start looking at the transplant option. I think that parents, I mean, I know that if I even compare myself today versus where I was back then, five years ago, I consider myself a much more rational person right now (laughs) than I was back then. Um, So I think that there's that two, there's two sides to it, that there's that challenge that exists. And to that kind of brings me to my second point. I think the reason why we're having this conversation and why we really want to have this podcast and specifically this episode is that it reaches out and um, it reaches the parents who who need to understand that there isn't a right answer, that the word good is very subjective and that we need to take into consideration that there's things that we need to dive deeper into. Or to your point, I mean, there's a lot of centers. Going to a good center, there's a lot of great centers out there. But what can we communicate on this episode for parents that might be useful to them as they're trying to think, maybe dig through the data, or if they're just trying to understand where do I start first? Or what are some of the things that I do need to take into consideration to make that quote unquote good decision? And I think that we're just trying to be that that voice of reason, if you will. And Jen, you can chime in if you agree, that voice of reason where maybe there's a parent that's just starting or part of the biliary atresia community and they're listening to this episode and they're like, oh, I didn't think about that. Or yeah, my center po- um, potentially had this low statistic, but as I'm hearing this, maybe you know what Dr. Sabrina was talking about makes sense. And I think that's really how we're trying to use this episode is talking to the parents to give them some little nuggets to think about. I don't think we necessarily have to have the answer to everything, kind of give them food for thought. Uh, I think that that's doing a huge, it, it's really helping the community for the people who are listening.
0: And I'll leave you with this, you know, as a parent going almost 10 years, this October post-transplant with my kid, biliary atresia, when he was first diagnosed, you know, I, we live in a, in an area where there's a couple hospitals around us. And, you know, when he was first diagnosed, we took him to the one that you know, we were told to go to. And, you know, from day one, all the way until now, it it was one of those things where I didn't look at statistics. I didn't look at, you know, we didn't have social media like we did back then. And there was not a lot of transparency, you know, back then 10 years ago, either. But I will say that I knew my son was in a good place. I had our team take my hand and take my family's hand and lead us through the entire journey. And I think that when you, when you're looking, you know, when you have that first conversation with your physician about how this is going to play out, how this is going to go for you and your child's condition. One of the things that I can say is that other than statistics, what should matter is bedside manner. What should matter is, you know, how your child is treated. What should matter, you know, there's all these other things that come into play as a parent that you want to see, you want to see that relationship with your physician with your GI or transplant team. You want to see that good relationship kind of grow because you have to build that trust with them because they're, you're handing your child off to them basically. So I think that's, that's my, you know, one of my things is not to get caught up in the numbers and to when you're making those decisions, to really look at some of the other things that these reports miss. Yeah.
3: I think one important statistic is time spent on the waiting list. I think that there are some centers who won't aggressively pursue transplant for patients who are they consider at high risk. And I, I'm saying that without any knowledge of where our center would stand in that ranking, but I think that. If I were a parent, that's what I would worry about. And as a doctor who transplants children, once you made a decision to do a transplant, you wanna do it quickly. And the speed at which a child is transplanted depends on availability of organs. And the availability of organs depends indirectly on what kind of organs the center is willing to accept. So I think parents, now, I'm I'm talking about transplants now, not biliary trees necessarily per se, but I think a parent has to ask themselves, well, does the center offer living donor transplantation? There are some centers that don't. Does a center, what proportion of that center's transplants are technical variants? I don't think a center has any business transplanting children unless they do living donors and technical variant transplants because if a center is waiting for a whole livers to come around for babies and infants that child is not going to get transplanted for a long time or will get very sick by the time they're transplanted unless the people live in an area and that is possible where there are a lot of infant deaths which is kind of bad from a societal point of view and good from, you know, if you're a transplant parent waiting for an organ. You know, for example, just recently we did a paper that was uh, organized by Bard, not Bear. Bard is Billy and Related Diseases Group. And uh, we did a paper combined with Europe and Texas children. So we were the only two American centers. And uh, there was a European consortium of centers and What was interesting was how much closer to Europe Chicago is in the sense of how we do our liver transplants than Texas, even though we're in the same country. For some reason, there's a lot of infant uh, livers available in Texas, so they had no living donors and very few technical variants, whereas in Chicago we have, you know, 60% of our 60-70% of our transplants are either living donors or technical variants. But for most of the country, most of the United States, I think the availability of uh, livers from small donors is very scarce. If you're a parent, you really want to know, does that center offer all of those options? Because if you're a parent and you want to donate for your child, you have to go to a center that offers that. If you're not able to do that, you want to go to a center that will get you transplanted with an adult organ uh, by taking a piece of it. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that I think as a parent, you would want to know is that is the center you're going to uh, give those, uh, options, uh, to families and not just wait for, you know, the perfect organ to come around.
2: I think everyone is waiting. Everyone gets or tries to get the most perfect organ for their patient, but centers that can do these technical variant graphs, they can view more than just the regular organs as as perfect and so it does help get the patients transplanted uh, quicker and obviously you want them to be transplanted as as quickly as possible if if a center does very few or not no technical variants then like Dr. Superana said we're they're just waiting for a similar sized donor which which is going to be usually going to be rare
1: For our listeners, too, when we're talking about looking for those numbers, where are we going to direct people to look for those numbers? Is that specifically in the SRTR? Again, these are recommendations.
2: There's a lot of data in those reports. I personally think it's too much and very difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. I think whatever questions, you know, some of the questions that we bring up here is you need to ask the people at your center the answers, and they should be able to provide it to you, and you can then look up the SRTR and see, see what it says there, and then compare other places. The SRTR reports have the number of split livers, the number of whole organs. They have got hepatitis C or donors, donors with high-risk donors. It's, there's a lot of information in there. They've got living donors, obviously, so you can see how many. There's some centers, like where I am, where things are adult and liver data are combined but you can still see the number of patients who are transplanted under the age of two between two and like five five and i think 12. if you have a child or you know someone who a baby who's you know let's say a year and a half years one and a half who needs a transplant and the center where you're at has not done somebody that age for the last year i think you need to ask the center are you guys comfortable doing this if all their patients that they've been transplanting have been eight years and up or 10 years and up, then you have to ask, why is that happening? Is it because they're being, like we were saying, very picky about who they're transplanting because they're afraid of the risk, you know, are they just going to manage this patient on the wait list for a long time and not transplant them? You don't know until you ask, but Jen, like you were saying, you, you have to have a relationship with your team and ask them the questions it seems like they're just dancing around the answer and you're not happy with that, then maybe you look elsewhere. But if they can explain to you why some metrics look like this or some metrics look different compared to national averages, then you, know, you have to decide whether it sounds like a reasonable explanation to you. I don't think anybody who's in this in transplantation is definitely not out to harm anybody. Everybody's trying to do what's best for the patient. Sometimes the parents do need to ask these questions if they want to get transplanted a little bit faster, or if they think the patient could be transplanted with a living donor and they don't want to wait for a deceased donor. But I think if you ask somebody directly, like, would I get transplanted sooner somewhere else? Or would I have more options if I move somewhere else? I think that's something you can ask. And at the time of listing, I believe it's a rule there, you're told that you can multiple list in other areas. Now, you can be told that but if you don't have the resource to do it then it doesn't mean anything so you still may be limited to only one or two centers where you can get transplanted it is also important to have family support system and all this stuff around you so if there are two centers that have the same good outcomes and one is you know your city versus 500 miles away it may be better to stick with your place but it's a, it, it is a big decision and not an easy one unless that center has some particular expertise in living donor and that that's what you're really after then i think it makes sense to to travel but if if two centers have have really good outcomes and the place you're at you're you're happy with i i think you can be you have to do all the research you can because it is it is a life and death thing but don't get too mired into the numbers of this is a number 5 place versus a number 10 place that can be very
1: misleading in listening to everything. The name of the game is being comfortable and confident in asking the questions and developing that relationship with the team. That was one of the goals that we wanted to get through this episode is to help empower people who were potentially needing to have the conversations or starting to look for a center is give them these little food for thoughts where they can start feeling comfortable enough to ask the team these types of questions and start getting the answers. I think that both of you guys really did that. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to go through this. I know that it's a complicated subject and there's a whole world that uh, we can talk about. But thank you for taking the time and walking through that. So I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure, my pleasure.
0: I want to thank you. I know you're on vacation. I know Dr. Mohamed, now that he's the big honcho down in Nashville, uh, has a lot to do as well. I want to thank you guys for joining us and talking with us about this topic, because we did notice that, you know, it was a topic that a lot of parents were talking about and kind of wanted to get down to the nitty gritty of it and, and just and just be able to help help people understand it a little bit better. And so I thank you guys Our for parents started me. sparring between right. centers, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> So I just want to thanks for joining us again today and thank you for also being members on our medical advisory council as well. And we hope that you guys will be able to come back for more fun topics because this was a good time.
3: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, I'm going to thank you so much. Yeah. yeah.
0: Enjoy your bye rest home. of your vacation.
3: Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having <laughs> us.
0: <laughs> bye.
3: Take uh, care. Bye.